The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Today we're doing, tonight we're doing Jonathan Edwards, and um, as, I, as I just mentioned last week, we did um, George Whitfield, and these two were contemporaries. They uh, met each other once, they knew each other, uh, and they were co-laborers in the Great Awakening uh, with different gifts, um, uh, different talents. When you um, think of Jonathan Edwards, what do you think about? It's the first thing that pops in your mind. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Well, let's start with that. I actually was going to show you a little clip tonight of a movie that is one of my wife's favorites, and it's Pollyanna. Did you ever see the movie Pollyanna? Okay, why would I want to show you Pollyanna? Well, in the middle of it, there's a sermon based on Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The minister is played by Carl Malden, and he gets up in the pulpit, thinks for a minute, prays, and then he just lashes the people with this sermon entitled Death Cometh Unexpectedly. And off he goes. And, and you know, it's just this grim sermon um, that leaves everybody feeling sour. And um, uh, that is the image that people have of Edwards. Now, I've given you a couple of pictures there of Edwards. The one on the left was a paint, an oil done uh, when Edwards was living. The one on the right was done, I believe, in the 20th century. Um, what do you notice about the two pictures? How would you characterize the one on the left as compared to the one on the right? Looks like a kind of a stop thing. You know, he's got that a little grim, I think, almost. I mean, there's really a picture of austerity. Someone said, I showed the picture to, to some folks earlier and said, he looks tired in the right. He looks kind of <laughs> worn out. Not a guy you'd want over for dinner, that's for sure. Um, yeah, half dead. Um, that is the image um, that many people have of Edwards, but nothing could have been further from the truth. Now, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God is a sermon that he preached uh, July 8, 1741. He was actually a substitute preacher that day. Uh, they were planning on having someone else, and he filled in. And uh, the revival, the awakening, had been swirling around Enfield, Connecticut, but had not reached that community yet. And I don't know if you remember when we covered the Great Awakening in our church history overview. Maybe some of you weren't here. But um, in order to understand New England and what was going on in New England and just how powerful this sermon would have fallen on their ears, realize that there was a strong feeling or sense of being the new Israel coming into the promised land. The Puritans that came over, this was the promised land. It was for them to kind of take over. And so they really had a sense of being an, almost an old covenant people, kind of under the covenant regulations. And uh, therefore, uh, preachers would come along and they would preach what would be known as, as a Jeremiah, a sermon patterned after Jeremiah. And what was Jeremiah's ministry? What was his job as he preached? Do you remember? Judgment. Judgment on a people who had broken the covenant regulations. That's basically the idea. And it's interesting, therefore, and, and if you would think about it, the key book would be the book of Deuteronomy. Now, the book of Deuteronomy is key because it's the second law giving, given by Moses right before the people enter the promised land. In effect, here's the law that you will need to keep if you want to keep your place in the promised land. And that's accurate. That's exactly what it was. If you want to stay here, you must obey God's commands. Remember what Moses said, today I'm setting before you life and death. 
Now choose life that you may live and that it may go well with you in the land you're entering to possess. And so Edwards gets up on July 8th and he preaches uh, from Deuteronomy 28.35. The text was, their feet shall slide in due time. Now, if you were to read that in context, it's a pattern of judgment or a, or a prediction of judgment on the Jews. And basically, in effect, what they're saying is, at the right time, God will judge them for their sin. Now, the doctrine that he gives uh, is, there is nothing that keeps wicked men any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. By the mere pleasure of God, I mean his sovereign pleasure, his arbitrary will, restrained by no obligation, hindered by no manner of difficulty, any more than if nothing else but God's mere, mere will had in the least degree or in any respect whatsoever any hand in the preservation of wicked men one moment. So that's the doctrine. The basic idea is that there's nothing stopping you from falling into hell except for God's providence, his sovereign hand. And the kicker is that the, the one who's keeping you out of hell is enraged at your rebellion. Now, the thing about this is, uh, inevitably, people read this sermon out of context or out of the context of the revival. Nor do they give any sense of the hope in Christ that Edwards ended the sermon with, that there was any hope whatsoever, or the overall tenor and flow and direction of Edwards' ministry. The fact that he had, if anything, a far firmer grip on heaven than he did on hell and, cle and clearly preached on the joys and the delights of heaven more than he preached on hell. But high school students will read this. You know, Lori, did you have them read uh, Sinners in the Hands of a... Are, are you an English teacher? Okay. Well, that would be the category of teacher that might have a high school student read this. Did you have them read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? A more balanced view. Good. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm glad. But tonight I kind of want to balance the view of Edwards himself, per se. Okay. Uh, and we, I want to get to the Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God in a minute. But uh, I want to read a poem. Uh, did I give you the poem on the sheet? I can't tell. Yours, yours is different than mine. Look at this poem. Um, this was written in 1961 by Phyllis McGinley, uh, entitled The Theology of Jonathan Edwards. And it says, And if they had been taught aright, small children carried bedwards, would shudder lest they meet that night, the God of Mr. Edwards, Abraham's God, the wrathful one, intolerant of error, not God the Father or the Son, but God the Holy Terror. That's what she got out of Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Well, John Piper dealing with this whole thing, and by the way, John Piper has made a kind of a lifetime study of Jonathan Edwards, and I've learned a lot about Edwards through Piper. One of the things that Piper got from someone uh, who was training him is he encouraged uh, pastors to pick someone from church history and make that, make that figure their special study so that they would spend a lifetime really getting to know their thought, their lives, uh, something about, about them in a deep way. And I think it's good advice. We're going every week through Heroes of the Faith. I would suggest you do the same. Choose one of these people you're really interested in and read up on them until you really get to be almost an expert on that person. It can't help but encourage you in your faith. Well, Piper chose um, Edwards, and he asked some questions about this. Now, when you read this, um, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God and this concept, it says, before any of us, especially pastors, sniffs at Edwards' imagery, uh, we had better think long and hard what our own method is for helping our people feel the weight of the reality of Revelation 19.15. Does anyone have a Bible? Right. Jack, will you read Revelation 19.15? He, he, he. Who are we talking about? Jesus Christ. Yes. 
you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And what does it say in Revelation 19:15? He will tread the, fi uh, the, the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. That's in your Bible. And the whole thing about this is, okay, how are you grappling with the image there? How are you grappling with the truth of the second coming of Christ and of Judgment Day? And this is how Edwards dealt with it. When Edwards commented on Revelation 19.15, this is what Edwards said. The words here are exceeding terrible. If it had only been said the wrath of God, the words would have implied that which is infinitely dreadful. But it is the fierceness and the wrath of God. The fierceness of Jehovah. Oh, how dreadful must that be. Who can utter or conceive what such expressions carry in them? So he's shuddering and struggling with this just like all of us trying to understand what's in the Scripture. And he's trying to be faithful to communicate to people the reality of the wrath of God. And, and Piper goes on and asks, what high school student is ever asked to come to grips with what is really at issue here? If the Bible is true, and if it says that someday Christ will tread his enemies like a winepress with anger that is fierce and almighty, and if you are a pastor charged with applying biblical truth to your people so that they will flee the wrath to come, then what language would you choose? What would you choose? How would you communicate that? And what would you say to make people feel the reality of these? Edwards labored over language and over images and metaphors because he was so stunned and awed at the realities he saw in the Bible. And then he says this, and Piper really brings it home very strongly. He says, high school teachers would do well to ask their students the really probing question, quote, why is it that Jonathan Edwards struggled to find images for wrath and hell that shock and frighten, while contemporary preachers try to find abstractions and circumlocutions that move away from concrete, touchable biblical pictures of unquenchable fire and undying worms and gnashing of teeth? Why? Why was he concrete, real, and vivid, and we are abstract, mushy, and avoiding? Why? And if there were a thoughtful student answering, the answer probably would be something like this, because Jonathan Edwards really believed in hell, but most preachers today really don't. And I guess for me, as biblical Christians, we all profess to be biblical Christians, do you believe in the reality of hell? Would you rather not talk about it? Well, who wouldn't rather talk about it? Rather talk about heaven. Well, Edwards did talk about heaven. We're going to see that. But he also talked about hell. And I'm about to preach through Romans. I'm about to preach assurance of salvation. What a delightful topic, isn't it? Assurance of salvation. The grounds of our assurance. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. Can I tell you this? Assurance won't mean much to you if you don't believe these things. You see what I'm talking about? It doesn't mean much. It's cheap and small and light if there is no hell and no wrath and no judgment. But if there is, and you've, been esca you've escaped from it, and you are free from condemnation, how precious will your assurance be to you then? And how precious the blood of Christ, which saved you from it. These were the realities that Edwards dealt with. To balance it, I want to read something he um, wrote on praise in heaven. And as I said, Edwards wrote as much and talked as much about heaven, if not more, than he did about hell. And this is a sermon uh, from Revelation 14.2. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And his doctrine in that sermon is the following. The work of the saints in heaven doth very much consist in praising God. In other words, you want to know what you're going to do in heaven? You're going to be praising God. 
Proposition number one, the saints in heaven are employed. They're not idle. They have much to do there. They have a work before them that will fill up all eternity. And then he goes on and talks about how God's attributes and his actions in history and his person will fill you up so much in heaven that you will have an eternity to pour out praise to God. And that's what he talks about for basically six pages of sermon. That praise is the employment of saints in heaven. And what will it be like for you when you finally see God face to face? What will come out of your mouth then? What will you speak about? Will you ever grow tired of it? These are the kind of things that Edwards mulled over with the kind of vivid richness and reality that he mulled over uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God, namely the wrath of God. Now, Mark Knoll has made an assessment of Edwards, and I think it helps put, a, put him together so we understand him. Since Edwards, American evangelicals have not thought about life from the ground up as Christians because their entire culture has ceased to do so. Edwards' piety continued on in the revivalist tradition. Edwards' theology continued on in academic Calvinism. But there, was, there were no successors to his God-entranced worldview or his profoundly theological philosophy. The disappearance of Edwards' perspective in American Christian history has been a tragedy. Basically, what Edwards, Edwards was, was he was a revivalist preacher on fire for God, deeply rooted in theology. He had visions of God which caught him up almost into third heaven. And he communicated those visions with a passion that is almost hard to put into words. And yet he was dealing with difficult theological issues like free will and predestination and original sin and other issues like that. There was a weaving together of the heart and the mind in Edwards. What we would call, what we could call logic on fire. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, speaking about him, he was a, a preacher in the 20th century, um, and he said, No man is more relevant to the present condition of Christianity than Jonathan Edwards. He was a mighty theologian and a great evangelist at the same time. Do we need that today? Mighty theologian and great evangelist at the same time? How about just one and not the other? How, how would you like a, a, a great evangelist who's a poor theologian? Huh? Pretty bad. Why is that bad? What's wrong with a great evangelist who's a poor theologian? Yeah, or at least partially untrue. And if you leave out some key things, according to Galatians, you're not preaching the gospel anymore. Okay. Well, what if you have a great theologian who's no evangelist? Then what? What do you think, Jeff, of a great theologian who's no evangelist? It's a waste. What's the point, right? You're up in your ivory tower thinking good and right thoughts about God, and who cares? It never gets anywhere, right? So we need both, don't we? We need great theologians who are passionate evangelists. And Edwards was that. He was a mighty theologian and a great evangelist at the same time. He was preeminently the theologian of revival. If you want to know anything about true revival, Edwards is the man to consult. Revivals have often started as the result of people reading volumes such as these two volumes of Edwards' works. He's referring, by the way, to these. These have been in print for a while now. You can get these for about 50 bucks total. Two volumes, $50. Well worth it. The only problem is the print, okay? Let me show it to you. This is what it looks like, okay? It really should have been six volumes, but this is what you get for your money. So get a magnifying glass if the print's a little small, but it's well worth it. You sure get your money's worth, that's all I can say, you know? 2,000 pages is really what it is um, put together, but 
It's powerful. And for $50, Christian Book Distributors, well worth it. Now, if you take your outline there, I've given you the major events of Edward's life. What I'd like to do is kind of coast through it quickly, and then we're going to zero in on some key aspects. He was born in 1703, October 5th, in East Windsor, Connecticut. In 1716, he was admitted to Yale. Uh, he graduated in uh, 1720 and continued to study at Yale for the ministry. In August of 1722, he was converted to Christ by reading the doxology, Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be glory, honor, and power forever and amen. That was his conversion text. I'll read about that in a minute, how that converted him. But that's, a, that's what led him to Christ. Uh, 1722, he served as pastor to a Presbyterian church in New York for eight months. 1722 of December, he began writing his resolutions. And I've given you a copy of some of his resolutions. Uh, his resolutions are powerful. Uh, so he was, when he wrote his resolutions, how old was he? 19 years old. Now wait till you see them and you'll, you'll see how significant that is. This is a 19-year-old, just out of youth group. <laughs> um, and he's writing these kind of res resolutions. Really amazing. 1724... Um, he's elected a tutor at Yale. Uh, 1726, called to Northampton Church in Massachusetts. That's in western Massachusetts, out in the Berkshires. Uh, my parents had their uh, honeymoon out there. That's uh, the western part of my state. Beautiful area. Called uh, Also, Northampton is near where UMass is, Amherst and all that. Uh, he's called as an assistant minister to his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, who had been one of the greats uh, in New England as a spiritual leader. So his grandfather was, was very, very well known. Uh, July 28th, he married 17-year-old Sarah Pierpont. Now, uh, she was 17. That was not uncommon. Uh, and she put up with a very difficult man for many years. And there's actually a book entitled Marriage to a Difficult Man, um, uh, just talking about her marriage to Jonathan Edwards. And he was difficult. He was, he was an unusual guy. Um, we'll talk more about that. But um, you really have to admire her. Um, and her courage. She was a tremendous helpmate for him. 1729, February, Solomon Stoddard died and Edwards was the full minister at Northampton. He delivered a public lecture in the, at First Church in Boston. That was a significant kind of coming out for him theologically. Uh, 1734 was the beginning of the revival in Northampton and he wrote Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God. I think that's his first major work. Uh, and one thing we're going to find out about Edwards is he, he was a very, very careful observer of revivals. And you want to know what a revival is and isn't. Edwards is the man. Um, he's, he was there. He observed it and wrote about it. Uh, we'll talk more about that. Revival continued through 1736. In 1740, he met George Whitfield, who joined him in awakening preaching. This is the time of the Great Awakening. Last week, we talked about Whitfield. Whitfield uh, preached to thousands and thousands of people. Edwards didn't. Edwards was basically a local pastor, pastor of a church of about five or 600 people in a quiet western Massachusetts town, never really went very far from where he was located and yet had, a, in my opinion, a worldwide impact through his writings. Not so much even in his life, but you know, after his life just because of the quality of his, of his thinking. But anyway, uh, and also another thing, uh, Whitfield and Edwards were very, very different in their style and in their temperament, but they loved each other. They really admired uh, one another greatly. July 8, 1741 is when he preached Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God at Enfield. Um, I'm going to talk about that and what happened after he uh, preached that sermon. 1741, he published The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God. 1746, he published Treatise on Religious Affections. Very significant work. 1747, David Brainerd died in his home. David Brainerd was a missionary to Indians. Uh, Edwards published later on, you can see in 1749, an account of the life of David Brainerd. 
Uh, tons and tons of missionaries have been uh, affected by that book. It's just, it's just David Brainerd's journal. Uh, Jim Elliott read it faithfully and was, cons- uh, uh, Jim Elliott, after reading one entry of David Brainerd's journal, and David Brainerd will be, would be well worth our study as one of the heroes of the faith. He's just a great young man of God who died before he was 30, I think, but was a missionary, totally sold out for God and gave his life in, uh, leading Indians. He was an Indian, a missionary to Indians. And um, at any rate, uh, Jim Elliott was reading and, and this was convicted about the need to confess pride to God on an hourly basis. This is Jim Elliott, uh, Elizabeth Elliott's uh, husband. Uh, she spoke at our church last year. Um, so this was uh, just an anointed work and it was Edwards that gave it to us. He just took Bra- uh, Brainerd's uh, journal and made it available to people. In 1748, it was the beginning of dissension in Northampton Church over communion. We're going to talk about that, but... Um, uh, there was a, a great controversy in the church over who could and could not take communion at their church. 1722, uh, I'm mean, sorry, in 1750, June 22nd, he was evicted as minister at Northampton. They kicked him out. He preached his farewell sermon on 2 Corinthians 1.14. We'll talk about that. 1751, he settled in Stockbridge as a missionary to Indians. 1754, he wrote and published a careful and strict inquiry into the modern prevailing notions of freedom of the will. It's still the greatest work, in my opinion, in church history on the freedom of the will. Um, and it's specifically, I think, because of this work that many people say that he's the greatest American philosopher ever. Um, he was not just a theologian, but a philosopher. He was looking into the nature and the essence of human beings and what the will was. And I think that his arguments there on freedom of the will are, are unanswerable. 1757, chosen to be president of the College of New Jersey, also known now as Princeton. So he was president. He published The Great Christian Doctrine of Original Sin Defended. And then on March 22nd, 1758, I believe he inoculated himself before that uh, against smallpox and the inoculation went bad and he died of the inoculation uh, at a relatively young age. So that's an overview of his life. Now let's look a little more carefully. First, let's look at Edward's personal walk with God and let's start by talking about his conversion. I told you that Edwards was converted... Um, with 1 Timothy 1.17 on his mind. Let me read his own account of his conversion. The first instance that I remember of that sort of inward sweet delight in God and divine things that I have lived much in since. Now listen to this again. The first instance that I remember of that sort of inward sweet delight in God and divine things that I have lived much in since. Is that the Edwards that you have a picture of from Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? Sweet inward delight in the things of God that I've walked in much since. But that's what it was for him to be a Christian. The first instance that I remember of that was on reading those words, 1 Timothy 1.17, Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you think that would be a converting text? (laughs) But it was for him. Now, he knew the gospel of Christ. He knew it well. But something happened when he read that. As I read the words, there came into my soul and came, sorry, came into my soul and was, as it were, diffused through it a sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense quite different from anything I've ever experienced before. Never any words of scripture seemed to me as these words did. I thought with myself how excellent a being that was and how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up in Him in heaven and be, as it were, swallowed up in Him forever. He's thinking, what would it be like to be with a God like that? 
Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. He's saying, I want to know a God like that. What would it be like to be wrapped up in Him forever? I kept saying and as it were, singing over these words of Scripture to myself and went to pray to God that I might enjoy Him and prayed in a manner quite different from what I used to do with a new sort of affection. But it never came into my thought that there was anything spiritual or of a saving nature in this. From about that time, I began to have a new kind of apprehension and idea of Christ and the work of redemption and the glorious way of salvation by Him. An inward sweet sense of these things at times came into my heart and my soul was led away in pleasant views and contemplations of them. And my mind was greatly engaged to spend my time in reading and meditating on Christ on the beauty and the excellency of His person and the lovely way of salvation by free grace I found in Him. I found no book so delightful to me as those that treated of these subjects. These words in Song of Solomon chapter 2, verse 1 used to, used to be abundantly with me. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. The words seem to me sweetly to represent the loveliness and beauty of Jesus Christ. The whole book of the Song of Solomon used to be pleasant to me and I used to be much in reading it about that time and found from time to time an inward sweetness that would carry me away in my contemplations. So basically from that point on, he had a deep and sweet fellowship and communion with Jesus Christ. That was his conversion. Now he had had great, a great deal of scriptural training and teaching up to that point, but that's when God visited him by the power of the Spirit with the love of God. And we're going to talk about that when I preach through Romans 5.5 5, and it talks about the love of God being poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. Uh, the next kind of conversion that happened in his life had to do with the issue of the sovereignty of God. Now, people think of Edwards as representative of so-called Calvinism or the centrality of God, the sovereignty of God, but it wasn't always that way with Edwards. And this is what Edwards says. From my childhood up, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty. It used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me. But I remember the time very well when I seemed to be convinced and fully satisfied as to this sovereignty of God. But never could I give an account how or by what means I was thus convinced, not in the least imagining at the time, nor a long time after, that there was any extraordinary influence of God's Spirit in it. But only that now I saw further and my reason apprehended the justice and reasonableness of it. However, my mind rested in it and put an end to all those cavils and objections. And there has been a wonderful alteration in my mind in respect to the doctrine of God's sovereignty from that day to this, so that I scarce ever have found so much as the rising of an objection against it in the most absolute sense. I have often since not only had a conviction, but a delightful conviction. The doctrine has often, very often appeared exceeding pleasant, bright, and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God, but my first conviction was not so. So in other words, initially as he began to read Scripture and read theologians and other things, he recoiled against the idea of the sovereignty of God. In the end, he embraced and delighted in it. And I know why. The more that I've considered these doctrines and understood, the more I see that my own salvation is wrapped up in it. In other words, the fact that God is sovereign isn't just some abstract doctrine for me, but it's the reason that I know that I'm going to be in heaven forever. I don't look inward to myself. I'm not looking to myself to keep myself in Christ, but rather I have a full assurance that that which He's begun in me, He will bring on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so when I read 
sinners in the hands of an angry God or the book of Revelation, the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. I take that very seriously and I think it will happen to those that reject the gospel. But it will not happen to me and not because I'm a good person, but because God has sovereignly saved me. He's worked in my life. He's raised me from the dead spiritually that says in Ephesians chapter 2. He's given me new life in Christ. And for that reason, divine sovereignty is also what I love to ascribe to God. Also, it gives me confidence to go across the ocean to Japan and preach the gospel to Japanese people and think that something good will come of that. Other than that, do you think that I'm so persuasive and get, a, get across the language and culture barriers sufficient that in two years I can make any difference whatsoever among a Shintoist or Buddhist or materialist type uh, group of people? What kind of arrogance would that be? I am the best missionary ever. If you just listen to me, you'll be converted and come to Christ. Never, never, never. Yes, didn't do a better job. There's a lot of aspects to it. Um, but I know for in this particular sense, uh, I believe that the sovereignty of God gives a tremendous impetus to evangelism and missions and outreach uh, because I believe very much that God is able to save dead people, <laughs> sinners. He's able to raise spiritual Lazaruses from the dead through the gospel. And that's what I count on and rely on. If you look on the back uh, of your sheet, uh, I have printed out for you Edward's resolutions. And this gives you an insight also into his walk with God. And I actually don't have a copy. So could somebody hand me one of the ones I passed out to you so I can read through them? If you look at the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards, and remember that he is 19 years old when he writes them. How many, how many of you are 19 or under? <laughs> okay. Okay, it's unusual. I mean, you realize the maturity of Jonathan Edwards at this point. Um, look what he says here at nine, age 19. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help. That's a great way to begin resolutions. Okay? I can't do this unless God helps me. I do humbly entreat him. What's another word for entreat? Ask him or beg him or invite him. I'm pleading with him to please do these things in me. So he's coming to his resolutions like a spiritual beggar, isn't he? I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will. Why does he say that? So far as they are agreeable to his will. And it may be that some of these resolutions aren't his will. He's humble about that. He's determining what he wants to do, but he's saying, God, if they're not your will, then I don't want to do them. So he's humble enough to acknowledge that his own resolutions may not be in the will of God. Uh, and then for Christ's sake. We live and breathe and move and do everything for the sake and the glory of Jesus Christ. All right. Let's look at the first one. Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good, profit, and pleasure in the whole of my duration. That's amazing, isn't it? And very deep. I'm going to be whatever I think is most to God's glory and my own good. And the beauty of Edwards' theology is that the two are not mutually exclusive. Isn't that great? That God's glory and my own good profit and pleasure are actually the same thing? That God is actually greatly glorified in doing good to me? He's greatly glorified in profiting me? He's greatly glorified in bringing me eternal pleasure in heaven? They're not mutually exclusive. That's the joy of Edwards' theology. So I'm going to do both all at once. And actually, if you start thinking about it, what would be not greatly to my good, profit, and pleasure? What would you call those things? Sin. I'm not going to do those things. And why? Because they do not glorify God and they do not do me good or bring me profit or pleasure in any way. Nineteen years old. Got that one worked out. And in the whole of my duration, I'm not going to do it for 
six months or a year, but as long as I'm alive. Are we ever exempt from this? I'm going to stop living for the glory of God today. I want a day off from the glory of God. Or I want a day off from doing whatever is to my good profit and pleasure. What day off are you going to take from those things? Mm -hmm. But we do take days off. I take time off from God's glory. It's called sin. You know, and uh, whenever we sin, we are taking time off from glorifying God. And so he said, I don't want to do that. I want to glorify God. And, and also it takes mundane things and lifts them up to the sublime. Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Can you eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich to the glory of God? Well, maybe not that. Maybe some other type of food you can eat to the glory of God. You can eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich to the glory of God. Well, let's get real practical. How do you do that? How do you eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich to the glory of God? God gave it to you, so to say thank you from the depth of your heart for it, that glorifies God. What else could you do? How else would that peanut butter and jelly sandwich eating be to the glory of God? Gives you energy. What are you going to do with your energy? Serve God with it. What were you going to say, Bob? All right, nourishment. Okay. You see how even the most mundane things get lifted up into the heavenly realms. This is not a dry, boring, sad, yucky life like look at the picture of Edwards, that 1960s picture. Wrong! That's not the way he lived. Look at the next one. Resolve to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. I want to do hard things that glorify God and to serve others. Resolve to do this whatever difficulties I meet with, no matter how great soever. Whatever hard things I face, I want to do what is most for the benefit of others. Uh, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. Now, he lived this out. This guy was unbelievable. While he's riding on horseback, he's thinking of theological things and writing them down on little pieces of paper and pinning them to his jacket. And when he got home, his wife would take them and unpin them and put them in good order for him. He was the quintessential absent-minded professor. This guy was, you know, he'd ride right by you and not even look at you. And then other times he'd warmly greet you. He just was immersed in what he was thinking about. But he made the most of every opportunity. Not perfectly, he was a sinner. You could say, well, he shouldn't have ridden by the person, he should have stopped and greet. All I'm saying is he wanted at all times to make the most of his time. Now, when I was in Japan, I read a sermon and it affected me greatly. And the name of the sermon was on procrastination. How many of you struggle with procrastination? His basic premise was that procrastination demonstrates pride. And how does it demonstrate pride? Because you think you'll have tomorrow to get that thing done. You may not have tomorrow to get that thing done. So whatever it is God has for you to do, do it with all your might while there's opportunity because you may not have opportunity. That's how it works. Boy, that convicted me greatly. Do I still procrastinate? Sadly, I do. But uh, at any rate, that's stuck on my mind. He also had another sermon called On the Preciousness of Time. And he talked to you, reasoned through why time is precious. Time is precious because it's finite. Time is precious because you don't know how long you'll have. Time is precious because it's a gift of God. Time is precious because within time come things that affect your eternal destiny, your eternal outcome. Time is valuable and precious. So, that was Edwards. Let me see if I can find one more and then move on. I like this one. Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Or, or, and he says in another one, what I would be afraid to do if Jesus Christ returned while I was doing it. <laughs> Whatever that is. <laughs> okay? And he goes on from there. So read through these. You've got them on your sheet. But um, they're, they're, to me, they're very challenging. 
He also had visions of the glory of God in his personal walk with God. Listen to this one. And, and see if you've ever had a quiet time like this. As I rode out into the woods for my health in 1737, having alighted from my horse in a retired place, as my manner commonly has been, to walk for divine contemplation and prayer, I had a view that was for me extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man and His wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love and meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent with an excellency great enough to swallow all thoughts and conceptions, which continued as near as I can judge about an hour. Wow. What did he experience? What was he seeing? Have you ever had something like that happen to you? The visions of the glory of Jesus Christ knocking him to the ground basically for about an hour. Thinking about the majesty of Christ. Such as to keep me a greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express emptied and annihilated. To lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone. To love Him with a holy and pure love. To trust in Him and to live upon Him. To serve Him and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly purity. Wouldn't you love to have a quiet time like that? Wouldn't you love to open up the Scriptures and have that happen to you for an hour? Weeping at the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ for that long. Now, it didn't happen regularly to Edwards. It happened that one time, 1737. But he had visions of the glory of God. And he said in his 64th resolution, it's not in your sheet there, but I want to read it. Resolved, when I find those groanings which cannot be uttered of which the apostle speaks and those breathings of the soul for the longing it hath of which the psalmist speaks, I will not be weary of earnestly endeavoring to vent my desires nor the repetitions of such earnestness. Thick language, what is he saying? When I start to feel that whoosh, you remember I was talking about the whoosh, when the Holy Spirit starts to lift me up and I have a sense of the glory of God, I'm going to give full vent to it. I'm going to stop whatever I'm doing and concentrate fully and get as much out of that as I can, regardless of whatever it is I have to do. This is not some dry theologian. This is a guy who is just saturated with God and yearned for more. Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Well, this was a man that was thirsty and he came and drank and drank and drank. And it was delicious to him. So that was Edwards. And that's his personal side. Personal walk with God. Now, how was Edwards as a pastor? Well, I don't think he was a great pastor. If you want to, if you want to be honest, I think there were areas of his ministry that were neglected. He was a little lopsided. Um, he was not an outgoing person. He was difficult to get to know. Uh, a little bit backward socially. Um, I think he continues to bless us because he was such a great writer and thinker. You could have a great pastor who doesn't bless people a hundred years later because he didn't write a thing. This man blesses us because he put his thoughts into words and his thoughts were so right and so deep. But that doesn't necessarily mean he was a great pastor. He spent 13 hours a day in his study. 13 hours a day. Now, he did visitation. He visited the sick. He evangelized. He was a traveling revivalist preacher. He had a life out there. He was a hard-working man. But... Um, 
he, I think, neglected some reasonable aspects of pastoral ministry, which Richard Baxter, for example, talked about the catechizing of his people and the and the uh, counseling with them and and touch and being in touch with them. That was not a strength for him. He was a pastor theologian, but I don't think he neglected his pastoral ministry. I'm just saying he wouldn't necessarily be our model. He ran into trouble in his ministry in Northampton. And it may be that he would not have run into such trouble if he had been more in contact with people, but I don't know if that's entirely true. I think he was right in his stand, but it may be that he was wrong in the way he went about it. I don't know. It's really hard for somebody like me to stand in judgment over somebody like Edwards. But what happened was the uh, New England Puritans had something called a halfway covenant. We discussed the halfway covenant when we went through church history, but basically the idea was you had converted and regenerate people who were having children who were not converted and regenerate, and then those children would bring their even less converted and regenerate, if that's possible, children to be baptized. Should we baptize the children of non-church-going people who don't even claim to be Christians kind of thing? Now, obviously, their baby baptizers were not. We wouldn't baptize anyone who didn't make a profession of faith in Christ. That's what it means to be Baptist. But they were baptizing their children. The children were becoming part of the covenant. Well, what should we do? Should the children be part of the covenant or not if the middle generation makes no claim to be Christian at all? And then it ran into trouble down the road. Should we accept these folks at the communion table, for example? Should we serve communion to them? They're living like pagans. They're making no claim to be Christian whatsoever. And yet they're coming for the sacrament. Now, you read in Corinthians, if anyone eats or drinks unworthily, they eat and drink what? Judgment on themselves. And Edward said, I'm not going to serve communion to people who are not walking with Christ. And they kicked him out. <laughs> they wanted their, their privileges. And Solomon Stoddard, his grandfather, had taught and argued for an open communion table that anyone could come anytime. But that's not biblical. First Corinthians puts a fence around the communion table. You need to investigate yourself. Ask and be sure whether you're in, in, in Christ and, and walking rightly with Christ. It's better not to take than to take and come under judgment. And that's what he preached. And he was evicted. Uh, but what's beautiful is, after he was evicted, or, or at, right before he was evicted, he preached his final sermon. And the sweetness of the Spirit comes across. What kind of sermon would you preach? Let me ask you this. If you had been an American uh, English high school student, having read this little snatch of Edwards, what sermon do you think he would have preached on his final sermon before this group of people that's evicting him from his pulpit. Well, listen to what he did preach. He said, As you would seek the future prosperity of this society, it is of vast importance that you should avoid contention. A contentious people will be a miserable people. The contentions which have been among you since I first became your pastor have been one of the greatest burdens I have labored under in the course of my ministry. Not only the contentions you've had with me, but those you've had with one another about your lands and other concerns, business issues. Because I knew that contention, heat of spirit, evil speaking, and things of the like nature were directly contrary to the spirit of Christianity and did in a peculiar manner tend to drive away God's spirit from a people and to render all means of grace ineffectual as well as destroy a people's outward comfort and welfare, I urged you to get along with one another in the spirit. Let me therefore earnestly exhort you as you would seek your own future good hereafter to watch against a contentious spirit. If you would seek good days, seek peace and pursue it. 1 Peter 3.10 Let the late contention about the terms of Christian communion, as it has been the great, greatest, be the last. I would now, as I am preaching my farewell sermon, say to you, as the Apostle did to the Corinthians, finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace 
shall be with you. What a beautiful way to end such a controversial and difficult time. And he went with a free spirit and he went on to the next things he had. So that was him as a pastor, a gracious departure. Now, what kind of theologian and philosopher was he? Well, if I were to look at the contributions he made, I, it, we, would, we could take a long, long time to study. and really should. And I'm almost wondering if we should do a little now and come back to Edwards next week. I'll pray about that. But one of the central ideas that Edwards communicated, one of the central visions of his theology was that the end for which God created the world and, ed- and everything was his own glory. As a matter of fact, God, God does all things for his own glory, even your own salvation, and that nothing is higher to God than his own glory. And he works out this theology, and it makes sense. Now, when you stop and think about it, what if God puts something above his own glory? What would he put above his own glory? What could possibly be higher or greater than God in his own estimation? Now, you could say, well, we're not supposed to be that way. We're supposed to prefer others ahead of ourselves. Yes, but we're not God. He's God. If he were to put anything above himself, he would be himself an idolater. But he has himself uppermost in his own affections and therefore all things he does, he does for his own glory, including our salvation. And therefore he communicates to us that we should eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it for the glory of God. That's a major idea and you would be years before you fully unfold the importance of that. The treatise on the end for which God created all things. Another of his significant treatises was on religious affections. Now, this changed my entire understanding. His basic premise is that the essence of true Christianity consists in the affections. Now, what are the affections? Let me see if I can explain this to you from what I get out of Edwards. This is a, you know, like a number line or something like that. This is the positive side. This is the negative side. If you put affection up here, The idea is that in the human heart, there is a tendency toward attraction or repulsion of everything you could ever consider. You see what I'm saying? You're either attracted or repelled from whatever we're going to bring out to consider, right? For example, if I were to bring out asparagus, are you attracted or repelled from asparagus? Jim? It's all right. So you're kind of right here on the positive side. Anybody hate asparagus? Okay, so you're over here. Okay, attraction, repulsion. Help if you could spell. Repulsion. You're repelled from asparagus. How about beets? How many of you really, really like beets? Okay, how many really hate beets? That's me. I really do. I Seafood, all right? Now I'm talking about food, all right? Fish. Okay, well, let's get a little more serious. People. Suppose I were to go through the church role, okay? And there are people. There's a natural attraction and there are those that there's not that affinity for. All right? Now, what is he saying Christianity is? He said Christianity, in its essence, comes down to affection. Attraction and repulsion. All right? And what do I mean by that? You're attracted to those things that God has commanded you to be attracted to and repelled from those things God has commanded you to be repelled from. All right, what are you commanded to be attracted to? Well, what are the two great commands? What are the two great commands that he's given you? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Okay, now put God on the mature Christian's line. Where is it? Where is God? Positive infinity, right? You are incredibly attracted to God, yearning to please him, want to be with him, would give anything to see him face to face. Love for God. That's what it means to be a Christian. 
A deep yearning for God. And what about your neighbor? A yearning to do him good at whatever cost. Isn't that in his resolution? Whatever it takes, I want to do him good. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to find my pleasure in his pleasure. I'm going to find my pleasure in his highest good. Is that not Christianity? And what about on the negative side? To hate, and I mean really hate, those things God really hates. And what does God really hate? Sin and evil and wickedness. Are we to be kind of like, well, eh, sin, you know, it's kind of here. No. We're supposed to hate it with a perfect hatred. Passion, you see, there's a strength to it. He said, you want to know if somebody's really a Christian? It's got to do with the affections. Yes. I think so. But, I mean, we could, we could get deep. And I'm going to pray about maybe coming back here. Yeah. What does the scripture say? Think about it. Think about it this way. I mean, and boy, we're really in the meat of things here. And I, I just, I'll pray about what we should do and come back to it because we're almost out of time. But what does the Bible say is the natural man's relationship with God? Rebellion, actually, enmity is the word that Paul uses in Romans. Enmity. So where would you put the natural man on the issue of God? Negative. And so conversion is huge. Do you see? God goes from being the thing you hate and want to avoid and don't want to submit to and rebelling against to the one you love the most and want to be with and are yearning for. That's conversion. And who can do that but God alone? I can't do it. I don't, I don't care what words I can put to it. I can't entice somebody. And especially all the more when what we're preaching is the bloody body of Jesus on the cross. What's that going to do? Well, nothing unless the Spirit uses that to bring you to conversion. And then it becomes the highest expression of love there has ever been in the universe the death of Jesus on the cross. It's amazing. But I think there's some depth to this and it has transformed my understanding of what it means to be a Christian. I want to love those things God's commanded me to love. And I'm hungry and thirsty to move ever further along this continuum. And the same on the other side. There are some sins here that are kind of, eh, on the little na- they should be way over here because God despises them and I should hate them too. You see what I'm talking about? It's not a mediocre kind of eh, life. It is a powerful, vivid, passionate life that Edwards is setting in front of us. Anyway, so treatise on, huh? Treatise on religious affections. Well, it's it's Edwards that de- developed it, but he's really going from the two great commandments. If you look at the two great commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself, what does it mean? What is love? And he's really delving into what is love. He wrote a whole book called Charity and Its Fruits on 1 Corinthians 13. And he is a careful student of what love is. Thinks greatly about it. You know something? Edwards, we're going to do Edwards now. I don't know. God willing, we'll do some more next week. I, I just, we can't leave it so quickly. Edwards would sit in a boat when he was young and he would stare down through the clear water of the lake and watch the mating habits of the fish down below for hours. You know, someone once said genius is the ability to concentrate for a long time on one thing so that you understand it thoroughly. Well, Edwards did that all the time, zeroing in on something, unfolding it. He wrote a sermon, which I'll never forget it. It was talking about the excellency of Christ. And he talked about how the excellency of Christ was seen especially in the uh, ordinary, ordinarily dissonant or kind of almost disagreeable aspects that are brought together in Christ, such as, not disagreeable, I'm not using good words, but... Lion of the tribe of Judah and Lamb of God, looking as, as if he had been slain. We've got the lion and we've got the lamb. We've got the sovereign majesty and power and the meekness and the slaughter and the sacrifice all in the book of Revelation. He's just going on the lion and the, the lamb image. And it's just he would just unfold these things and just go on and, and see how there would be contrasting elements in Christ, both of them there. 
beautiful. He concentrated a long time. And one of the things he studied the most and concentrated on, zeroed in on, was revival. What is revival? Because when revival happens, it gets messy and complicated and difficult and exciting and moving, right? When you think of revival, what happens in a revival? Oh, man, do they change. And stuff happens. All kinds of stuff happens, right? Some of it's good. <laughs> Some of it, hmm. You know, when people start screaming and rolling around in the ground because they're under conviction, what is that? You know, what's going on there? And some of the old lights, the old kind of ministers in Boston and all that, like, hmm, this is, this is demonic. Edwards said it's not demonic, neither is it proof of the Spirit of God. He's so careful. He's saying, just because that's going on doesn't mean the Spirit's here, nor does it mean that the devil's here. Could be other things. And he would list what are and what are not evidences and examples of a true moving of the Spirit of God. We'll have to get to this more next week. We're only beginning to scratch the surface. Any questions of what we covered tonight? Well, talking about people who are under conviction start crying out, weeping, and then throwing themselves on the ground. That might be an example of some of the excesses and the stuff that was happening at revival time. He's saying it's no proof either way of being a, spirit, a movement of the Spirit of God. And it's no, he said it's no proof that it is and it's no proof that it is not when it happens. That's what he said, to use his careful language. It is no proof either way when, and then he'd list these things. And he'd explain why it is no proof either way. And then he would say it is a proof of the moving of the Spirit of God when, for example, the glory of Jesus Christ becomes exalted and magnified in the life of the person, for example. Or genuine love for neighbor is worked out in these following ways. These kinds of things. He was a very careful thinker on these things. All right. One, any more questions? One more. All right. It seems that you know we're right in the middle of it, and I'd like to do a little bit more. I want to talk about freedom of the will and some other things. Why don't we close in prayer? Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.